0: Let the church say amen. Amen. Say amen again. Uh, We come here to celebrate uh, the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus, who is the Christ. And I think we ought to make joyful noise unto the Lord. Amen. The Bible admonishes us, it commands us that the redeemed of the Lord ought to what? Say so. So So that that means we got to open up our mouths. When we say that we know that the Lord will make a way somehow, we say that because in the history of the African-American religious experience, we've always done our theology in our music. Can I have a, a, get a witness this morning? Because the reality is when the preacher could not read because it was illegal for him to know how to read, some type of way the spirit of the living Christ helped him to see that God literally was a big God. So he would say simple things like, you know, God is too high, you can't get over him. He'd say he's, he's too wide, you can't get around him. And he's too deep, you can't get under him. But really what he was saying is that God is sovereign. And he was looking at the, the providence of God. And so I don't know about y'all, but I'm so thankful that when we come together, we have a rich experience as believers in Jesus Christ, and we have a rich experience as brothers and sisters who have come to know that the Lord will make a way somehow. And he makes that way through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Amen? So I do greet you in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, who is the Christ. I thank God for this church. I thank for the leadership of this church. I thank God for you, uh, my brothers and sisters in Christ, especially my brethren here, the elders who are serving faithfully, Nate, Maceo, and Jared, Lord. I just praise God for their community together. Amen. Amen. And amen. amen. Give the Lord a hand clap of praise. <laughs> Shepherding uh, this flock known as Forest Baptist Church. I think the first time I preached here was. For- about seven years ago, and so uh, I'm going to preach the same message since y'all forgot. <laughs> no, I'm just playing, I'm just playing, but the first time that I came here, it was seven years ago, and the Lord is still taking care of his church, amen, amen. because the church is in the Lord's hands, and that means that nothing can cause her to falter, and that is a good thing, amen. 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 Well, this morning, uh, I want you all to turn with me uh, to the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2 will be our study this morning. I won't read all of the verses, but it will be my desire this morning to highlight uh, significant verses from this entire chapter, but we won't read the entire chapter we'll just read verses 1 through 7 in the book of Ruth and I'll read from the New American Standard Bible when you have it just say amen. amen if you don't have it say wait up I'll give you about five seconds and then use the table of contents and we can go for it. Amen. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth, of the, of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servants, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? The servant in charge of the reapers replied, She is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, please, let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came, and she remained from the morning until now. She has been sitting in the house for a little while. This morning, I want to talk to you from this thought, the positive side of providence. The positive side of providence. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord, the positive side of providence. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your sovereign grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your word and how you're going to speak, continue to speak to our hearts through your word. Father, I pray, Lord, that these moments together will strengthen your church in the faith. Lord, I pray, Father, that as we fellowship together in your word, that Jesus Christ would be glorified and that the spirit of Christ will illuminate the word so that it does not fall on fallow ground, but, Lord, that it falls on fruit, on good ground, on our hearts. And, Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us today and that you would give us greater hope in your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And thank God side of Providence, you probably heard a uh, saying, God moves in a mysterious way. In fact, if you've heard that line or saying before, you, you might not know that it was adapted from a poem written by a man named William Cooper. The title of that poem is God Moves in Mysterious Ways his wonders to perform. He goes on to say that he hides his footsteps in the sea as he rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs as he works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds that you so much dread are big with mercy, and they shall break with blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace, for behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. William Cooper could write that poem because he knew something about a frowning providence. He knew what it meant to to go through life experiencing both joy and pain. Sunshine. Sunshine. He he knew what it meant to go through life experiencing uh, multiple occasions where he actually tried to commit suicide. Each time, God sent someone to deliver William Cooper from his own hand, and he experienced the mercy of God each time he allowed a difficult providence to cause him to want to cash in all the chips. In fact, Cooper eventually found grace through the eyes of a man by the name of John Newton. John Newton, as many of you know, wrote the famous Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found blind, but what? Now I see. But John Newton could write those words because John Newton at one point in his life was a rebellious hell raiser. I know we don't have any former hell raisers in this house. So let me just speak as one who was a former hell raiser. But Jesus Christ saved John Newton, gave him a vision for life, a vision for the imago dei or the image of God in all people, and showed him that his desire to enslave Africans and to place them on slave ships as a slaver was a desire that was not wrought from the mind of a holy God. And he repented of his sins, he repented of his alcoholism, he repented of all these things. And and the more he studied God's word and the more he communed with other believers in Christ, the more he saw that the only reason why he was saved was because of God's great grace. In fact, when you think about the grace of God, one writer said that grace is nothing more, G-R-A-C-E, than God's riches at Christ's expense. Isn't that true about grace? That we receive grace not because we deserve it. We receive grace not because God saw something good in us. But we receive grace because God looked through the telescope of time and said to you and said to me that I'm about to make you alive so you can start living like you're supposed to be living. See, the same grace that keeps us and saves us is also the same grace that gives us the ability to walk in the newness of life and to live life in light of his beautiful providence, though it is sometime high, it's sometimes low. Because the providence of God has good days and the providence of God has weary days. That's why when we hear those songs, we we get the shouting, don't we? I've had some good days. Y'all, y'all know the song. I've had some heels to climb, y'all. I ain't the only one who heard that song. And we start shouting because we, we know that in our life there has been highs, there has been lows, there has been stars, but there's also been scars. But the God of the Bible did not leave us alone when we were in the midst of the valley. And some of us, in fact, want to accept a God who, who only dwells on the mountaintop but can't come with us in the valley. But if you want to accept the God of the Bible, you must accept the God who knows how to control the mountaintop experience, but also to walk you through your valley. You see, Cooper had days of delight and days of disappointment. He knew the the thrill of victory, and he also knew the agony, agony of defeat. And I'm sure, I'm absolutely positive you know what I mean when I say the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. You've experienced pain and shame and guilt in your life, just like I have, because we live in a fallen world. Everyone under the sound of my voice this morning knows something about brokenness, because if you live on this side of heaven, you must know something about bro- brokenness, because sin has entered into the world. I got good news for you. There's something that God has given us for our brokenness. And that is the broken Jesus Christ who went to the cross so that you and I might have life through him and have life more abundantly. I got good news for you that when you read the Bible, the Bible is designed, beloved, to point us to one who literally was bruised on our behalf and received our pain so that we would never experience eternal torment the absolute wrath of God, I got good news for you, that everything we read in the Bible points to Jesus. And it's no different here in the book of Ruth. You see, this morning, beloved, we're going to eavesdrop in on two women who experience that frowning providence that Cooper talked about. As you know, a biblical understanding of the providence of God basically says that God's providence is both meticulous and exhaustive. Both terms simply mean that nothing can occur in human history apart from God's decretive or his permissive will. Can I preach and teach this morning? You see, when we say that God's providence is meticulous and exhaustive, that means that when God says yes, it must happen. When God says no, it must stop. Amen. It means that even the most wicked thing we see in human history has to seek the permission of God to occur. Even if it's not decretive, it's permissive. Because God is never on his throne just wondering what's happening in human history. He don't don't phone a friend. He's never... Caught off guard if something bad happens in our lives. God always knows what's going to occur before it occurs, and God always has a word for that situation. See, we can't begin to destroy who God is just because we see a different providence. And the book of Ruth is tailored to teach us how not to do that. In fact, for those of you who know this book, know that this book. Is about a woman who is going to experience redemption. E- even though the book of Ruth is named after Ruth, I would venture to say that the book of Ruth really isn't about Ruth. But it is about the redemptive work of a woman named Naomi. And You remember in the book of Ruth, allow you just to see the four chapters, the big picture of the entire book before we get into chapter two. You'll notice, beloved, that... Do I need to turn this off because that is messing me up bring it up how's that I brought it down and I brought it up all right but you'll notice now in chapter one in the book of Ruth if you look at these four chapters Ruth chapter one Ruth chapter two Ruth chapter three and Ruth chapter four you will notice in chapter one it opens up with pain everybody say pain in the book of Ruth, the first five verses, you'll see that a man by the name of Elimelech takes his wife and his two sons into the country of Moab because there was a famine in the land of Judah. In fact, they lived in Bethlehem. And, and as you know, the word Bethlehem basically is the combination of two Hebrew words. The first word is Beit. The second word is lechem. The word Beit means house. Everybody say house. The second word, Lechem, means bread. Everybody say bread. So when we say Bethlehem, we're basically saying the house of bread. But in chapter 1, it says that the house of bread was without bread because there was a famine in the land. Are y'all walking with me this morning? And so in chapter 1, we see that famine was in the land, and Elimelech takes his wife and his two sons, Malon and Kileon, to this land called Moab in order to try to provide for them in the midst of famine. Now, some argue that Elimelech was probably wrong to go to Moab because God says in the Old Testament, don't enter into the land of the Moabites even if you think things ain't right. All right? That's the Ebonic translation right there. But he says don't do that. So people say that Elimelech perhaps was in sin when he goes into Moab with his wife and his two children, Malon and Kilion. But you got to know something about Malon and Kilion. And here's what it is. Malon's name literally means sickly. His brother Kilion's name means frail. Can you imagine growing up and that's your name? Frick sickly and frail. Hey, what up, sickly? How you doing, frail? Oh, I'm not feeling well today, right? B- but the text says that they were sickly and frail to say something about how they were born in their neonatal stage as infants, Right? So these individuals were sickly and frail. They were named sickly and frail because Naomi probably had to take care of these boys, knowing that if she did not provide sustenance for them, that they were going to die before they reached the age of one. You see, Naomi didn't have that Gerber, y'all. She, she, she couldn't order up some simple cushions. No, Naomi had to give them the, the milk from her breast so those sickly and frail boys were close to her breast, and she nurtured them. Naomi had to take the meat and eat the meat and chew the meat up and then put the meat in their mouth. She didn't have the gerber, y'all. Somebody knows something about that, don't you? Y'all remember Big Mama doing that? I know my Big Mama did it, and I was like, mm. give me some more. Give me some more. But Naomi probably did the same thing. And now you have these two sons, Sickly and Frail, and they have married wives, Orpah and Ruth, and they are with these wives for 10 years. And the text says in chapter 1 that Elimelech, my God is king, that's his name, Sickly and Frail, died. Y'all see the tension in the text? Sickly and frail die, Elimelech dies. And now the text says that Naomi, in verse 5, is bereft. She, She has nothing. She knows nothing but pain because now the very persons that she placed her confidence in for sustenance, for life, now are gone. There's sorrow and tension in this text that's not rejoicing at this point in the text. But then you see verse 6 in chapter 1 and something happens. Verse 6 in chapter 1 opens and it says, Then she arose and her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord, everybody say Lord, Yahweh had visited his people in giving them food. I need y'all to see what's happening now, because now it says in chapter one, the Lord now has visited. He has shown concern for his people. And in showing concern for his people, the house of bread now is bread again. So Naomi's like, look, I need to go back to Bethlehem. But she tells her two daughters in law. She said, listen, I'll go back to Bethlehem, but I need y'all to go back to the land of your mother. Go back to Moab, find you a good husband and have some kids. Just just don't stick it out with me because I need you to know that I can offer you nothing. I have nothing to offer because there's so much pain in the text. And you see Naomi making this statement in verse 8. And nine in chapter one, she says, And and Naomi said to her daughters in law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord Yahweh deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. But watch this. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices. And they what? And they wept. She says to them, listen, I I, I, I need you to go and to live your life. I need you to go and to experience strength in your life. But as for me, I'm going to try to go back to Bethlehem and find something so that I can live. But you, my daughters, go and be full. Live long and prosper, she says. But then they weep. They're weeping bitterly because whenever pain enters into someone's life, there will always be tears, right? But what do we do when someone's entering into pain and tears? We oftentimes what? We run away as opposed to running towards them. But Ruth now, when you read chapter one, you see in the midst of Ruth. Now, remember, chapter one is about pain. Ruth says to her mother-in-law, I don't care what happens in your life. Oprah is turning her back, going back into Moab, but I'm going to stay here with you. And only death will cause us to part. Because your God will be my God and your people will be my people and only death can cause us to part. I make a covenant with you, mama, that I ain't going to leave you. I ain't going to forsake you because this is going to be based upon my my promise to you. And and here's what's amazing about this, y'all, when you read the text, chapter one, because we're working our way to chapter two. What's amazing about this, beloved? is that when, when Naomi hears this, what does Naomi say? I, I'm going to show you. Verse 19. It says, so they both went until they came. No, go, go, go to verse 17. Let's listen to it. It says, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. Then verse 18, here's Naomi's response. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. Did she say thank you? Did she say, girl, you, you got it going on. Oprah just, Oprah just dissed me, but, but here you are, you kissing me and you won't dismiss me, girl. I, I, you the best daughter-in-law on this side of Moab. Did she say that? Now the text says she just saw the girl was determined to go with her and she was like, Y'all know that's what people do when they're broken and in pain, right? But but, but when someone does that and they're broken and they're in pain, don't allow your brokenness to feed into their brokenness. Because you wanted a response of, thank you, I appreciate it. No, no, if you don't get that response, the reason why you're saying you want to be a tender warrior and to minister to them is because the God of the Bible has given you a promise so that now you can be a promise keeper and not a promise breaker. Are y'all listening to me, beloved? Beloved? And so what Naomi does is, Naomi basically says in the text, when they finally make it to Bethlehem, everyone in Bethlehem is like, isn't this Naomi, the pleasant one? That's what Naomi means. And she said, oh, no, my name has changed. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara, bitter, because El Shaddai has done bad things unto me. It's basically what she's saying. El Shaddai, the, the warrior God, has literally brought out his sword against me. So yeah, I left here full, but I'm coming back empty-handed. It's right there in the text. I ain't making it up. 19 through 21. And she says, now I have nothing. But she says, look, I left full. I have, I have my husband. I have my two sons. And, and now I come back to you empty. And I guarantee Ruth was standing right by the whole time. The Ruth say, what am I, chopped liver? (laughs) The Ruth say, oh, did you think about me, mama? That's why I can't stand her now. I should have never made that that covenant. I knew I could have found me somebody in Moab. Did she say that? No. No. Because broken people break people, but those who have been broken and look consistently at the brokenness of the Lord, those individuals make people. You see, now we finally get to chapter 2. I know that took a while, but Nate said I had at least 45 minutes. So y'all going to have to work with me this morning. No fingers up in the air walking out the door, amen? I got my water. I plan to labor. But in the text y'all, here's what's taking place now because you need to know that in chapter 1 if you're going to understand chapter 2. And cuz in chapter 2, now we're entering not in now we're no longer in pain, but now we're going to see provision. Everybody say provision. You see in chapter 2 what takes place is, now Yahweh, the covenant keeping God of Israel is going to show Ruth and Naomi that he has not forgotten them. That's what's happening in chapter 2. And so when chapter 2 finally opens up, the text says in verse 1, Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. You see, here's the whole point of this text. Here's what you got to take home this week. Are y'all ready? God provides a hookup in order. To cause Naomi and Ruth to look up. Did y'all hear that? I'm going to say it again. God provides a hookup in order to cause Naomi and Ruth to look up. Specifically, he's going to cause Naomi to look up. Because the whole time in the text, as you see, Naomi is doing what? Naomi allows herself to navel gaze, right? And y'all know when you navel-gaze, you can't give them praise. But God is going to use Ruth in order to serve as a mediator. Everybody say mediator. As one who's going to stand in the gap between the pain of Naomi and the promise of a coming son. (laughs) I like that. I like that. And and Ruth is going to stand in the gap and she's going to connect Naomi's pain to the promise of a son in chapter 4. Mm, 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 I'm trying to take my time with this. But when Ruth does this, Ruth does it because God is providing the mediator. Y'all, it's not just Ruth. It it is God who is the one who's going to raise up Ruth so that Ruth is not going to allow the brokenness of others to cause her to respond in a broken way. It is God who's going to give Ruth the confidence to make a promise and a covenant, even when everybody says you should turn your back just like Orpah. No, it is God who does that. And because God does it, when God does it, it comes in the heart and no one can shake it up. Because when God starts, God will finish. Oh, I know I'm in Bible country. Philippians 1.6 says what? He who begun a what? A good work and you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So if that's true, beloved, then that means what God starts, God will finish. And so what God starts in this text is he allows the pain, he's in control of the pain, but he's also in control of the praise and the promise. And so the text opens up, she finds a, a kinsman, it says, of her husband, he's a man of great wealth. You see, understanding the providence of God, someone has said, I believe it was David Jeremiah, he said, understanding the providence of God is sort of like reading a Hebrew or an Arabic word, Jimmy. You got to read it backwards. See, you can't understand the providence of God without looking at God's providence backwards, because if you try to understand God's providence forward, then you will always get it twisted. How does God allow individuals who for 246 years of American political history live as dehumanized people and use those individuals to get to a point where they literally hold the highest office in the land? I don't know how you understand that. How does he do that? I can't figure it out. It's still blowing my mind. But, but when you read it backwards, you say, because God is a gracious and a merciful God who is more concerned about people than you and I will ever be. That's how. So it's not about. Nation-state politics is not about American political history. It's not even about our own individual ethnic groups. No, it is about pointing pain to the one who's the true sufferer, and that is Jesus Christ. In order to really experience life as a Christian. And so the text shows us that now God is raising up this man of great wealth. Why? Because he is a kinsman redeemer. Now, now some of you say, well, what does it mean when it says a near kinsman? Well, the Hebrew word goel, translated kinsman redeemer, was basically one who had the right and the responsibility to take care of a deceased relative's property and people. Did y'all hear me? So the kinsman redeemer had the responsibility, if a close relative died, he had to step up and say, you know what, I'm going to take care of this uh, widow I'm going to take care of her children. And everything that I take care of will not belong to me, but it will belong to them and to your memory. See? Now, Ruth says, as you look at the text, the text says in verse 2, and Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. Everybody say favor. First time I heard this text preached, a long time ago, I heard a man say favor ain't fair. <laughs> and I said, you know, that's true. Because favor is never fair because none of us deserve his favor. So if you think favor ain't fair because you deserve it, then you still don't favor. No, favor ain't fair because none of us deserve his favor. And if he shows us favor, the only thing it should create in us is humility. Why are you showing me this favor? Well, why are you showing me this mercy? Because when you experience the favor of the Lord, you will be just like Ruth. As we read this text, she falls before Boaz and she says, I can't understand why you're doing this. You see, he says, please, she asked, let me go. She humbles herself, Ruth does. She humbles herself to her mother-in-law. And in humbling herself to her mother-in-law, she basically says, let me go glean in the field and see if I can find kindness or favor amongst anyone who might be there. You see, God provides a mediator for Naomi in in the person of Ruth. But in verses 2 through 7, we also see that Ruth humbles herself in order to bless Naomi. You know, when your heart is hardened, you, you typically can't see the blessing that's right in front of you. It's right there in the text. When your heart is not looking at God's providence and His sovereignty, the blessing could be right in your face and you'll never see the blessing. But the question is why? Well, I think the answer could be because we're not looking through spiritual eyes, but we're looking through a secular orientation. You say, well, help me with that, preacher. What do you mean when you say secular? Well, I'm glad you asked. Here it is. Y'all stay with me. I only got 15 more minutes, maybe 20. But the word secular basically means, it's derived from a Latin word, saculum. And the word saculum basically means this. Watch this. It means one who lives life, Closer to time as opposed to eternity. Literally. That's literally what it means. A century or an age. But it connotes the idea of a person who is living life close, paying more attention to time than they are to eternity. A person who is a secular is not allowing their gaze to be on the things that are outside of time. Are y'all hearing me? When you have secular eyes and a secular orientation, you can't see spiritual things. You can't see what God is working right in front of you because you're not looking at it through the providence and the sovereignty of an absolutely good God. People who have turned to secularism typically say things like, why me? And then we respond as we read the Bible, Job, why not? (laughs) Why not you? And so in the text, beloved, we we read this thing. And when we see that Ruth is humbling herself in order to bless Naomi, Ruth treats herself like a subordinate servant in order to seek permission from any landowner who will show her favor and kindness in verses two through seven. And she experiences this favor and kindness because she shows up to a property or to a field that belonged to Boaz. Everybody say Boaz. Come on, y'all. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to take my time, y'all, but i was so excited about this. Now, now can you imagine now? Because, see, we, we, we got Twitter. We got Facebook. We got little iPhones, cars that go over 50 miles per hour, depending on which one you're in, if it, you know, you're dealing with me. But we got cars that can get us from one destination to the de- next really quickly. Jump on a plane, I could be in Texas this evening. Real quick, easy, right? But these women marched and walked hundreds of miles from Moab to Bethlehem. And then when they finally made it to Bethlehem, she just happened to end up in the field belonging to the closest kinsman of her dead relative, Elimelech. Are y'all hearing me? Do, Do things just happen to happen? No, no, things don't happen to happen. Now, God in his providence allowed Ruth to show up exactly where she was supposed to be, when she was supposed to be there, in order to do what he was telling her to do. Because God in his providence, when he allowed Elimelech and sickly and frail to die, knew he was going to provide for Naomi through Boaz because Ruth would say, I'm going to submit to you and I'm going to do whatever needs to be done to bring about God's purposes. But you can't see that if your eyes are closed. You're secular. I I can't see that. What's that? Oh, I don't like that. Open up your eyes. That's how he works. And and she shows up in this field because we know that things just don't happen to happen. This is God's providence, not coincidence. So as the text pushes forward in verses 8 In verses 8 through 16, beloved, here's what happens. God shows favor or kindness, we can use the words interchangeably, to Ruth through Boaz. Now that's important now, that's really important. Because remember, the whole point of the text is a mediator. Everybody say mediator. Stay with me, beloved, stay with me, beloved. It's important because if the point of the text is the mediator and the first mediator is Ruth and now the second mediator is Boaz, that means that God works his sovereign will through people, right? So the sovereign God of the universe will use a human being and give them responsibility to serve as his hand and his feet in time. Are y'all hearing me? So then now Boaz is gonna step up, and Boaz is gonna provide for all of these reapers. But the question you ought to be asking is why does Boaz provide for the reapers? You know why? Because he submit to the authority of Scripture. You see, uh, oh, listen, listen. Let me just show you. It's here. I gotta show you. It's in the Bible. I ain't, y'all think I'm making this stuff up. I'm not. It's it's really here. Listen. Leviticus chapter 25. When you start reading Leviticus chapter 25, verses 23 through 34, here's what you'll hear. The land moreover shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. Yahweh says it belongs to me. For you are but aliens and sojourners with me. He's, but he's saying y'all just decorated dust. The only thing y'all got is because I give it to you, so don't, don't get it twisted. Thus, for every piece of your property, you are to provide for the redemption of the land. If your fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor he has to sell part of his property, then his nearest kinsman is to come and to buy back what his relative has sold. Or in the case a man has no kinsman, but so recovers his means as to find sufficient for its redemption. Then he shall calculate the years since its sale and refund the balance to the man to whom he sold it and so the return his property. In other words, you ain't going to keep it forever. One could call this uh, righteous reparations. Amen. It's not like asking for 40 acres in a mule and you never get it. Are y'all with me? Thaddeus Stevens. No, no. the the biblical view was you raise these individuals up. You know that this all belongs to me. And when you see that you purchase it back, you give it back to the sojourner and the stranger or the one who's become impoverished. Because you know that it is mine and mine alone. And I have loaned it to you in order for you to give it back. Not to break your brother, but to strengthen and to help your brother who's falling on bad luck. So the reason why we can praise God for Boaz is because Boaz never closed his Torah. He was wealthy, wasn't he? The text says that he was a man of honor and he didn't close his Torah. He didn't close his Old Testament. No, he allowed the word of God to motivate him to give up a portion of his land in order to provide for the the poor in his community, so to speak. You see, this is why I love the Bible. I love the Bible because the Bible teaches us, beloved, that on the positive side of providence, God is working through both pain, but he's also providing for us through his great promise and his people, the mediators. First mediator in the text we see was Ruth. The second mediator in the text we see is Boaz. But it's only because they're willing to submit to the authority of Scripture. They submit to God's word. They submit to God's decree. Just another passage, and then I, I, I will go back to Ruth. But I, I need you to see that this is also in Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, just write it down if you can't turn there. In verse 28, it says, and at the end of every third year, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in that year and shall deposit it in your town. The Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance among you, and the alien and the orphan and the widow who are in your town, shall come and eat and be satisfied in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. That's social justice and that's social welfare For the Israelites. Amen? So now when you read chapter 2, we're reading this in light of the fact that Boaz is the mediator who submits to the word of God because God is going to show favor and kindness through Boaz to Naomi. And so now you see the dialogue in verse 10, chapter 2. In verse 8, rather, he says, then Boaz said to Ruth, listen carefully, my daughter. Do you see that language? Do not go and glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on this field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. Now, why does he say I commanded them not to touch you? He says, I commanded them not to touch you because you need to understand that a woman in the ancient Near East was vulnerable to ungodly men. And he says to her, I've commanded my servants not to take advantage of your beauty. Because now they know that if they take advantage of your beauty, then it will be my duty to give them a holy beat down. Are, are y'all listening to me? And so he he sees this this young maiden he sees this girl and he says no you're not going to be a, 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 an opportunity for sexual conquest no that's not who y'all. you are you're created in the image of God you, you 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 belong to God and you have worth not because of what you can do physically but you have worth because you're created in his image and God says you're a daughter of the king And he says, what I've done is, I've told these men, even if they get it twisted once, that if they try to take advantage of you, then I'm going to have your back. See, that's what godly men do, right? That's what godly men do. So God is providing... For Naomi first through Ruth and now God is providing for Naomi through Boaz because both Ruth and Boaz have submitted their thoughts to his thoughts knowing that his thoughts are above their thoughts. Lest I hold you too long this morning. Verses 17 through 23. God begins to lift up Naomi's countenance, giving her hope. God begins to lift up Naomi's countenance, giving her hope. Now the question I asked as I was reading this text is, how is God lifting up Naomi's countenance? Well, he's providing Naomi with a tangible offering through a willing servant. Naomi chooses now not to navel gaze. She begins to give God praise because in verse 17, when Ruth returns, Boaz has provided for Ruth and he's giving her something tangibly to give to Naomi. And in verse 19, it says that her mother-in-law then said to her, where did you glean today and where did you work? May, May he who took notice of you be blessed. Now, when it says, may he who took notice of you, the same word taking notice is the exact same word that the writer uses in chapter one, verse six, when it says that Yahweh visited visited Bethlehem with food. He took notice of her. In other words, he was concerned about you. And it says, I want him to be blessed. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. Everybody say Boaz. Boaz. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness, his chesed and his, from the living or from the dead. Naomi said, this man is our relative. He is one of our closest relatives. Naomi, who was bitter, now is using terms called blessed. Naomi, who was frustrated, now is being liberated. And she's saying, I, I see that Yahweh hasn't forgotten us. Girl, don't you go nowhere. Because I think God might be in this. And, and now she's so excited because God is causing her to delight in the things that really matters. And the thing that matters in life is not what happens to you, but the one who controls what happens to you. The good, the bad, and the ugly, beloved. The sovereign God is always good, and the sovereign God is always in control. No matter how hard it gets, God is still good. And you know why? Because his will is mysterious. This is why Chuck Swindoll, in the book entitled The Mystery of God's Will, says that God is too good to do anything cruel. He's too wise to make a mistake but he's too deep to explain himself. That's the God of the Bible. And when the God of the Bible shows up, he always gives us a hookup to cause us to look up. And when you start looking up, you better look out because it's going to transform the way you see yourself in the way you see others. Y'all, y'all know yesterday I was, I was washing my wife's little old car, trying to get it right, knowing it was going to rain today, but it still has salt on it. And I was washing a little old car, and, and I hear this man get out of his car, and he starts to curse out two women, and, and I saw a child in the back of the car. And I mean, he's cursing them out. He's going at it. Now, I won't even bring up the ethnicities. Yes, y'all think I'm trying to create some, you know, uh, race war up in this house. But, 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 the, but, but the man who was, he, he was a uh, Caucasian brother. Let me just keep it real. And, and the sisters in the car, they weren't Anglo sisters, but they were African-American sisters. Notice how I keep saying sisters. I take it both ways. Amen? And so these, 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 these African-American sisters were in the car. And he was cursing them out because they had blocked traffic going into the car wash. Everybody wanted their car wash. But he wanted to leave. And so I heard him cursing them out, and I said, man, what is going on? Everybody else was frozen. So I walked over to his, his van, and I said, sir, does it really take all that? And he said, they're doing some dumb, uh-uh, y'all y'all bleep. And I said, sir, you and I both have done some dumb stuff in our lives, have we not? He said, yeah, but not that dumb. And I said, sir, is it really that serious? Because don't you know that you're created in the image of God? And God loves you, and I do too. And he loves them as well. Do you really want to make it this hard? Life is too short. It's not that serious. And he said, you're right, life is short. And he pulls up his, his, his compartment, and he shows me a Glock 40. And I saw the Glock. I said, see, that? there you go. You take life over something this petty. And he said, you know what? You're right. I said, let me me pray for you, brother. I said, but here's what I need you to understand. That that the Lord wants you to look at this situation and ask yourself, what really matters? I said, but I want to pray for you. And I shook his hand, and he said, thank you. And he drove off. I start washing my wife's car again. But why am I bringing that up? To say that I'm the hero? Absolutely not. Because there was a day or I would have been the one saying, You see? But I realize that unless we, beloved, have the courage to become the mediators as the body of Christ in order to enter into someone's pain and their shame, then we will continue to allow this world to go topsy turvy, chaos But just in case you want to know what motivates us to do that, well, here's your answer. When you and I weren't fit to live, but we weren't ready to die. Before the foundation of the world, a holy God looked at himself. And that holy God looked at his son, Jesus Christ. And he said to his son, he said, son, I'm going to need you to do something for me. And his son said, what, daddy? He said, I'm going to need you to die for these sinful people. He said, but all these sinful people, they're not going to look at you and say, oh, I thank you for dying for us. He said, no, they're going to look at you and they're going to say, crucify him. He is not the Lord. He said, no, these sinful people are going to raise up their fists against you. And they're going to raise their fists against you and you're still going to have to die in their place. But here's what I want you to do as you look at these sinful people, since I've chosen them before the foundation of the world, and my spirit will make them alive so that they can see you for who you really are. I need you to look through the telescope of time at these sinful people. And I need you to say, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then when I make them alive, they're gonna start seeing your cross for what your cross is. And they'll say, just like Horatius Bonner had to say when he started to think about the cross of Christ. Horatius Bonner said this Twas I that shed the sacred blood, I nailed them to the tree, I crucified the Christ of God, I joined the mockery of all that shouting multitude. I feel that I was one. And in that din of voices rude, I recognize my own. Around the cross, the thrones I see, mocking the sufferers groan. Yet still my voice, it seems to be as if I mocked alone. The question is, where were you when they crucified the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, I got the answer. You were right there amongst the scoffers. You were right there saying, crucify him. He is not the Lord of glory. But Jesus Christ, because of his love and his grace and his providence, said about you and about me that they will have a right to the tree of life because I will make them see who they are and who I am. Beloved, we are saints who sin, but we were sinners saved by grace. And if God's grace has made you alive this morning, you leave this place but never his presence, saying that God has given you a hookup so that now you can look up And you go out looking around for people who need to know Jesus. And if you go through this week, beloved, and you don't tell anybody about Jesus, let me let you in on a secret. You just a spectator, not an imitator. Because Jesus Christ hung and died so that you might live. And I might live. So that if we die today, hallelujah, all we'll see is the glory of the Lord. And if that don't motivate you to live, and motivate you to give, then I don't know what will. Beloved, you ought to give him praise today because he's on the throne. In the midst of pain, he's leading us to promise. And because he is the holder of the promise, the promise is found in his son. And God says that he'll never turn his back on a repented sinner. I'm exhi- exhibit A. You exhibit B, you exhibit C, you exhibit D, you exhibit E. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But if you come to Jesus today, he'll save you forever, for free. The doors of the church are open, beloved. The doors of the church.